Of course, having a purpose is great. But what are goals without real actions? In the end, only well-defined plans can make a difference and bring change we aim for. To reduce the harm that fast fashion does to people and the planet, we need a new framework. The regulations for import, waste management, the mindset of the consumers or the overproduction of clothes that ruins the environment, just to mention a few aspects. The way towards a well-being textile industry is not just a theoretical talk, but where to begin? So together, we are going to deep dive into the next steps out of an overdressed world. What specific measures need to come into action to make the well-being wardrobe a reality? Are policymakers and the textile industry leading the change that consumers are demanding? Hi, my name is Sarah Tekart and this is Wellbeing Wardrobe, Undressing Fast Fashion, a podcast from the European Environmental Bureau. Our guests today are Dilara Burkhardt and Kate Fletcher. Dilara Burkhardt became a member of parliament in 2019 for the Social Democratic Party of Germany. Dilara is a member of the European Parliament's Committee on Environment, where she mainly works on climate and biodiversity protection and circular economy, hence her expertise on textile industry. Since the beginning of her mandate, Dilara was pushing for legislation on sustainable textiles. In her rapporteur position, she is working on the introduction of European rules for deforestation-free supply chains. Dilara is also the spokeswoman on environment policies for her party's delegation in the European Parliament. She has taken part in several events on circular economy and textiles. Kate Fletcher is a design activist, research professor and author. Her work is both rooted in nature's principles and engaged with the cultural and creative forces of fashion and design. For more than two decades, her original thinking has infused the field of fashion, textiles and sustainability with design thinking and come to define it. Kate is the most cited scholar in this field with over 70 publications on fashion and sustainability. Kate brought systems thinking to fashion and this and the pioneering key concepts such as earth logic, fashion ecologies, post-growth fashion and her role as a co-founder of the Union of Concerned Researchers and Fashion. Kate works in tandem with a partner. Today, she joins us to present their research. Dilara, Kate, welcome. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's a genuine pleasure to be here. Previously in this podcast, we have learned which negative impact the fashion industry and fast fashion specifically has on the environment and on the people who work in the industry. We have also learned what an alternative economic model could look like. And we have learned about some concepts such as the well-being economy and post-growth. And now the important question is, how do we get there? Kate, let's start with you maybe. You have long been questioning fashion's addiction to economic growth. Can you please introduce us to your Earth Logic work? 
Yes, of course. But before I do, I just want to say that Earth Logic is a project that I do together with my longtime collaborator, Professor Matilda Tam. So today on this podcast, I'm actually going to speak for us both. So Earth Logic is a radical invitation to business leaders, to policymakers, designers, the media, to citizens and more to put Earth first and transform the fashion sector. Quite simply, the idea is we begin to really see that what we need to do is to put the health of the earth as the central guiding principle for all that fashion does. And when we do that, everything begins to shift. It's a bit like having a kaleidoscope, if you like, you know, one of those children's toys that if you raise your eye to it and then begin to twist it, new patterns and configurations emerge. So what Earth Logic is, it's a bit of a twist of the kaleidoscope that shows us different perspectives, different ideas and different beginning points for fashion. Why it's important? Why do we need Earth Logic? Well, because the growth logic, the logic of economic growth that's so shaped fashion for so many years needs transforming because it's incompatible with earth systems. So instead of growth logic, we offer instead earth logic. Maybe as a follow-up question for you, Kate, do you feel that the fashion industry is engaging with the idea of questioning economic growth at all? It is. What we've seen over the last 20, 25 years in the fashion space is different waves of interest and concern around questions of ecological damage, workers' rights, and maybe more recently a more integrated intersectional sense of humans and people together. And it's true that questioning the economic growth imperative that's behind most businesses within Europe isn't normally part of this. And yet, whereas previously, these sorts of conversations were seen as sort of a bit weird and a bit off the edge, now people are curious and people are beginning to frame their ideas within planetary boundaries. And this also includes questioning growth. So if the industry is not changing on its own, that is obviously where regulators must come into play. So let's chat about whether from a policy perspective, we can expect any action to change course. Dilara, can you tell us about what is happening in the EU around the EU textile strategy? Yes, sure, I can. And I mean, what Kate has been describing is to basically completely changing the way how our consumption patterns in the textile industry are working. And this is a big task to do for a regulator. I mean, you cannot regulate how people decide on a daily basis which decisions they should take in order to have a more sustainable lifestyle and in order to maybe also completely change the way how they use fashion because right now it's it's seen as a thrown away product. And this is where we are jumping right in from the European perspective because right now there's the discussion or there's actually a proposal of an EU textile strategy that um, was proposed, that was announced. It's not very concrete yet, but what basically is the idea about it is that we see that voluntary commitments by the industry to make 
the textile sector more sustainable, it failed. If it's still less expensive or more profitable to have an unsustainable way of how to do or how to produce textiles. So this is where the European Commission set or got aware that as a regulator, one of the biggest markets of where textiles are, are going or are consumed, that there you have a big power to shift how the textile sector is functioning. And this is what they are doing with or proposing with the strategies. There's the goal of stopping overproduction. There's the goal of having products to be more repairable, more long-lasting, etc. But of course, this is all not enough to change this mindset that Kate was doing. It's because it's not questioning the model of growth, but I think it's a good start because until now, there has not been any real regulations when it comes to the textile sectors. It has been always the, the problem description, but there has been no action. So I think I'm happy about the start of the EU textile strategy, but of course, it's only the starting point of a way more complex process that needs to happen. Eva May pin you down on the last thing you said, because you mentioned actions. So my question is, what do you think can realistically be achieved through the policy opportunities that exist? And what do you see as the biggest barriers to bringing about more accountability in the industry? When I talk to people who are concerned about the way or the footprint they are leaving with their consumption of textiles, they are concerned because they have no transparency. And they don't know if they are contributing to the destruction of the planet or the destruction of the people. I mean, they could know because it's obvious that a shirt that is costing five euros, there has to be some problem with that. But there is this awareness. And what we need to pin down is that we have to have consistent and current policy answers on that. I mean, it's not about making greenwashing more easier. It's about having clear reduction targets And when it comes to textiles, to the use of, for example, hazardous substances, when it comes about the design requirements, there cannot be like easy greenwashing options. There has to be truly current circular answers on that. Kate, would you like to add on to that? Thank you. So I think what Matilda and I would say is that the biggest challenge we face is a challenge of volumes. The volumes in the sector are far too large and need to dramatically reduce. And maybe the easiest way to think about this is that we sort of just need to do less. Less doesn't require a degree in rocket science. It's sort of obvious. Legislation has a really profound role in this and it can really guide business decisions. It can really guide the decisions of designers. It can begin to incentivize certain behaviors, but that legislation absolutely has to be targeted at the right goal. And at the moment, I think we see very little evidence from across the piece of incentives like durability, whether durability in garment form actually reduces overall levels of clothing consumption. What we see at the moment is that it doesn't. It just means that people are buying ever more durable clothing and the sort of the same quantity of them. I mean, I am a specialist in design for sustainability. And so I say this with, with a heavy heart is that Design in this case is a weak force in influencing overall levels of clothes consumed. And actually what we need to do instead is introduce legislation that's really targeted at the key 
issue here, which is about the logic of assuming somehow mythically, magically, that we can continue to grow forever on a finite planet and have as many more clothes as we want, which is not true. And uh, tied to that sort of myth of ever growing, that actually that we can do that, providing that we introduce maybe technology or other systems to do that. But that's not the way. We need instead legislation that's targeted at the really key questions here. And they are around questions of growth. Maybe as a question to both of you, because... Dilara previously mentioned that we are really short on time. So looking at climate change and how we can already see its impact today, it is evident that we are running out of time indeed. Do you think it will be possible to make changes fast enough? I mean, if I would try to find political majorities for a degrowth debate, and then we won't, <laughs> because this is something that won't happen. I mean, I know right now in the situation the political majorities we are having in Europe to shape the legislation that is targeted to achieve uh, this goal. And when I would go in the parliament and say, okay, people, we have to talk about degrowth. We have to talk about the less of volume, which is, of course, what I want to achieve with the legislation. Everyone would shut down the doors and I wouldn't get any uh, ground. So I don't think that there's one point that needs to shift and everything else will then be solved. Um, this is why I think the EU textile strategy we are working on has to look at the whole secularity of production. And we are having right now the situation that Europe uses a lot of textiles, but we are only recycling 1% of it. So let's start with this step that we make the textiles we are using going back into a cycle of reusing as a first step. But of course, all the other ones and the question of education about knowing that we should use less and also setting the targets of less resources that should be used in the textile sectors. I think there has to be binding legislative targets to, to this um, reduction of volume of production. But this is also, again, depending on how possible it is for the industry or how the asked for the industry it is to have these design requirements that are, make it possible to recycle and to reuse the materials that are being used. So I think we have to embrace this idea of circularity in order to make the discussion on volume reduction possible. Of course, it's also an individual consumption decision that we always are taking. Yeah, it's great to hear, Delara, that volumes is your sort of ultimate goal and that less is also an acknowledged key priority. I mean, it's an essential requirement for the sector is a shrinking Binding targets, wouldn't that be wonderful? I think even the minimum that calculations suggest is that uh, we're facing something like a 75% reduction. And so obviously this is going to be very difficult for those people who are thinking that they can just keep on being in business and that climate change isn't going to affect what they do. Whereas, of course, this is in order to have an earth that you can actually do business in, we're going to have to make these targets really binding and act upon them. I, I would just like to just go back to the question a little bit and to think about, you know, time is so short. It is. It's so short. Every moment counts here. 
one of the things that we've seen repeatedly is that people tend to want to sort of go back to the beginning and work through ideas that were worked through 20 years ago and not uh, and go through them again in order to build, bring up to speed. There is very well-developed information already and not to keep going over the old ground. And this new information really does show that the big challenge that we face is around less and around thinking around local, building community resilience and adapted textile communities around Europe and beyond. And then also really beginning to think in plural terms about what textiles and fashion and clothing mean within our communities and that there's many there's many ways to do that. One of uh, the things that we do know from these advanced starting points is that circular ideas are very welcome and they're obviously very old. Before going deeper into the interview and looking at some best practice examples that already exist in the industry, let's recall a few things we have just learned. From a grassroots perspective, the biggest and natural challenge ahead is to target volumes. To consume less resources and reduce waste, fewer clothes should be produced. This is where policymakers come in. According to researchers and activists, legislation targeted at reducing the production in the textile industry is essential. However, the well-being economy approach has not been addressed at an EU level yet. Even if the ultimate goal is to reduce production, the different voices within the European Parliament make it almost impossible to question the model of growth. So simply shutting down the machines will probably not happen soon. What has been done instead is looking at the circularity of production, which is addressed in the EU strategy for sustainable textiles. In previous episodes, we talked about how often the solutions presented to us as consumers are limited to encouraging us to buy products that are supposedly a bit more sustainable. Can you talk a bit about what sustainability in fashion looks like from your perspective? Kate, let's maybe start with you. Well, from my perspective, it's a celebration of community. It's an opportunity to unlock knowledge of the world, uh, the ecological systems and vitality that we live within. It's a chance to get together with your mates and make pieces that will tie your bonds together evermore. It's an opportunity to self-regulate what it is that you wear, like you self-regulate what it is that you eat on a daily basis and begin to practice these sorts of skills of organizing fashion in communities and other things. You may notice that none of what I've described necessarily has a role for business, but I definitely see that business is going to be part of this sustainability fashion space going forward. It'll just be a smaller and less central part than the part it's played. And instead, what we'll see is a wealth of different things that are coming from our communities 
and from in people's homes and across garden fences and at kitchen tables. It's going to be much more decentralized and it's going to come out of what people themselves need and can do, which is very different to being driven top down for the aspirations of the bottom line of big global mega brands. And for you, Delara, what kind of examples that you would like to share have you seen that have inspired you? There will be still probably production of textiles in the sustainable fashion industry in a way. And, and some stories that really um, make me happy to hear and also see change happening in the industry is when I see workers in the textile industries who are really happy about the part they are doing and they are earning enough to make their ends meet um, and who have identification with the product they are making and also receiving the respect for their work in the consumer side of the product. So that um, fashion is something that is seen as a value and something that is produced with people's hands and that is has a value and has to be sustainable in order to fit it. And I think this is something that is really important for me, that sustainable fashion is about also respect about the work that is in the product. And because of this respect you are having, you are not throwing it away after two years in your closet, but you are trying to put it back in the cycle. And I mean, there are projects um, in, in some cities where you have completely new models of how you use fashion, that you have like rentable stores where you can go and just exchange with the community on the clothes you are using so you can hand in a shirt and get a pullover and then come back and just like flip it with your society. And I really like this idea, but I think this is also something that you have to probably see that it's not going to be feasible everywhere. This is an idea you have, and this is also happening For example, in the rural areas, I'm actually from a rural area. And when there are, for example, children coming in the community, you have like flea markets where you can exchange the clothes because children are growing up so fast and there's actually every day a new size you would need. So that you have to have this, I like the idea of this neighborhood picture that you have, that fashion is something that you share, that's something that you work on together. But still, I think for a start, this would be my utopia that is already happening in some cities. But for the start, I would be fine that I see smiling faces on the consumer side and also on the producer side when it comes about the product they are producing and that it's sustainable. So with these examples that you have just given us, what do you think would be the challenges these projects or concepts are facing in general and how can they be solved? So from the perspective of Matilda and uh, myself, I would say that maybe the biggest challenge is, um, or it's a twofold challenge, I think. It's a crisis of imagination, really, that people can't imagine other ways of being satisfied with fashion, around fashion, other than by buying a new piece. And then that's then underpinned or maybe that's been created by a multi-billion pound marketing industry that uh, scratches off the scabs of want and need and plays with all manner of psychological tools to begin to undermine senses of satisfaction, 
or all sets of ideas around what it is, what you have already and whether that's enough. And I think that one of the, the really big challenges is how can alternative sets of ideas coexist within a space which is so heavily weighted towards this, towards buying more. So what we have here is a situation, this big, powerful marketing lobby, a situation that's actually undermining, it's like a social trap that we're caught in. It's undermining our sense of ourselves. So that, I think, is the biggest challenge that we face. How can we breathe oxygen into these alternatives in the face of almost like the opposite direction, all of this marketing promoting more. Delara, what do you think? This is basically the core challenge, how we can put out the speed in consumption in a world that is working on speed and consumption. And what I think is so important is that we can live in our bubbles where we live, this sustainable use of products, this, the shift of agenda, but not be in contact with those who are still suffering from the system that is actually working on the mass of production about having more collections than there are seasons in a year, etc. Building these bridges, I think, is really much crucial. And myself, I'm a fashion revolutionist. I'm working together a lot with a fashion revolution. And I think even if you're not capable to start tomorrow a completely sustainable use of fashion, you could start asking the question, who made my clothes? To show on the end of the production cycle or the beginning, like you see it, that there are people working for it. And you have to make this connection from the whole system of fast fashion to the daily use of fashion. And I think this is something that fashion revolution is targeting a lot, mobilizing empathy for people who are working in the industry, making it a common societal project of changing this industry. And I think this is something that needs to happen. And this cannot only happen in Western European small communities where we think about how we can change our behavior, but it also has to happen in bridges with the regions where the mass of textile is produced for the demand we are having on a European market. So I think uh, building these bridges is crucial in order to make it really successful. To end on a high note, looking at all the things that we have learned in this podcast, what have been the biggest wins so far, Kate? So I think one of the biggest wins is that growth, this logic that has been accepted almost unquestioningly by the fashion and textile sector, is now being questioned. And I think that that is a huge win. So placing front and center a critique of the underpinning systems that shape what it is that we do is the biggest win. And one of the things that we all know is that when we begin to talk about growth, so growth is not an end in itself. It's only a means to get somewhere else, isn't it? So I think one of the biggest wins also is that we can begin to put ecological stability, vibrant communities, ecological balance, meaningful employment, we can put those as the goals here. So allowing us to question growth allows us to replace these things as the, the a suite of goals that we're heading towards. And 
what I think we all know for ecological stability, for economic diversity, for all of this, what we need to do is to begin to embrace less. Dilara, in the light of this critical analysis of what should be done and what has been done already, what are your priorities for the years to come? I mean, the rising public awareness is actually the reason why we are discussing something like the EU textile strategy right now. So if there wouldn't have been more and more upcoming questions, who made my clothes? What is in my clothes? Who's responsible for exploiting people and planet for my clothes? This growing questions on the consumer side have led to political pressure to make the regulations that make it possible to answer these questions because there was the awareness we cannot answer these questions. So I think this is a big win, that the awareness in the society on the problems of the industry has put more pressure on political actors to actually frame, to change the framework of the industry. As a last question to wrap up this episode and to wrap up this podcast, do you have any tips for our listeners who want to support a more environmentally and socially just fashion industry? Where and how can they learn more about this? What are your advices? Oh, well, I would encourage listeners to find out more by perhaps looking at EarthLogic. Uh, the report is free to download from earthlogic.info and it's in four different languages, English, Spanish, Portuguese and Swedish. So maybe start there. Also, I would really encourage people to embrace common sense. It's much less attractive to many people than rocket science. But actually, I think in our hearts, we all know that many of the answers we uh, need are within our grasp. And they don't require a new technology to make them so. They are decisions that we can make around how we behave on a daily basis. Tilara, would you like to add on on this? Yeah, I would have five concrete asks. So the first one would be listen to the other episodes of the podcast and get more background information. The second one would be to support the Fashion Revolution campaign by asking the producers of textiles who made this clothes, what is in my clothes, who made this fabric, etc. Ask all the important questions. And the, the third one would be connected to address to all EU citizens, because there's right now a very important citizens petition we are having. Um, it's called Good Clothes, Fair Pay. And they are collecting or trying to collect. There's a way to go. Uh, one million signatures to demand that there should be a living wage for the people who make our clothes. And also on the website, you would find, if you are not an EU citizen, how you can support this campaign. Fourth, I can recommend to watch the documentary True Cost, also important, you should do that. And last but not but least, if you want to be updated on the procedure on the EU legislation side, I can recommend just uh, connect with me on diverse social media and I will update you what is happening on the European level. Dear listeners, please check out the show notes. We will leave all the information of the things that have just been mentioned in there for you to find. Dilara, Kate, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For those who are interested in learning more about the EarthLogic report, you can download it from the website earthlogic.info. 
That is www.earthlogic.info. If you want to learn more about Dilara's and Kate's work, you can check out their personal websites. For Dilara, that's www.dilara-burkhardt.eu. That's www.dilara-burkhardt.eu. For Kate, it's www.katefletcher.com. That's www.katefletcher.com. Thank you so much for listening to Wellbeing Wardrobe, Undressing Fast Fashion, a podcast by the European Environmental Bureau. You can find us online on wardrobechange.eu. That's w-a-r-d-r-o-b-e-c-h-a-n-g-e dot e-u. And follow the European Environmental Bureau on Twitter at at green underscore Europe. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore E-U-R-O-P-E. And this was our last episode. The producer of Wellbeing Wardrobe is Sarah Abuschleich. Editorial background and script writing by Maria Dios from Bulle Media and myself. Sound design is by Thomas Kusberg. Editing and mixing is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kusberg. My name is Sarah Tekat. Take care. Goodbye.